In Galatians chapter 6, Paul said, I will glory in the cross, but he doesn't say, well, yes, he does, but which one is the one we wonder about? There are lots of crosses, I mean, in America, and it really depends on where you're at and what cross you're looking at as to what the cross means, because there are tons of crosses around us. So if you really want to know what a cross means, you can't just look at the cross, not in America. You have to look where you found it, is my point. So I went and looked at some different crosses this week, and one of those I call the steeple cross. It, it represents any time that we mark a space or an object or a person as being Christian as opposed to something else. And so churches, Christian churches, have steeples or crosses, and Christian sanctuaries have crosses, and Christian Bibles have crosses. So when you see it, you know that that's not the Koran. <laughs> that's not the Bhagavad Gita. No, no, that's the Bible. Because it's, when you see a vestment with a cross, you know that's a Christian minister. We, we have what I call Constantine's cross, for want of a better word, named after the emperor who, after seeing a cross emblazoned in the sky with the words, in this sign, conquer, went on to make Christianity the formal religion of Rome. And so Constantine's cross is anytime you see a flag and a cross, you know, sort of wrapped around one another and you think, oh, I know what that means. It means God bless America as he died to make men holy. Let us die to make men free. And I'm not despising this, but I'm saying that's a different cross than the one you see alongside of a highway or the one you see on a Bible. It has a different meaning because of where you found it. This one means God is with us. God is on our side. And it's the cross that kind of tangles up our patriotism with our pursuit of Jesus. So that to be a true patriot is to pursue Jesus. And to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a true patriot. <clears throat> In World War I, German soldiers uh, had emblazoned on the back of their belt buckles, Gott mit uns, God with us. So it's, it's this idea of what I am doing for country is also for God. It's this kind of Constantine's cross. We have what I call home run cross, and this is every time a person on your team does something great, then they come across home plate or they score a touchdown. Say if you're a Colts fan, no, none of you might be. You score a touchdown, and before you put the ball down, you do this whole thing, and then you kiss one to mother or something. I'm not sure, but what, what this basically means is this one's for you, Jesus, and I love you, Mom. And, and, and it also means if you're a Colts fan that even Jesus hates the Patriots. So <laughs> you like to hear that, don't you? See, when you're transformed, no, I'm stuck. Then there's one that I call Jared's cross because every time you see it, you think, oh, he went to Jared's. And, <laughs> and this is a cross that people wear either on their uh, necks or on their uh, ears or sometimes they tattoo it. And, and when they wear this cross, it improves their value. I mean, you never look at a person and say, oh, they look so much better if they didn't have that cross, you look at them and go, oh man, that cross just accentuates you even more. So the meaning of this cross is, heck yeah, I'm hot, but I still have morals, or something like that. <laughs> so the point in all this is that 
If you want to know what a cross means, you have to look where you found it because there are just so many crosses. Context is everything. Now look at the cross in Hebrews chapter 13. The priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but, but the bodies of those animals are buried outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city to make people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him who is outside the city, bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we have no enduring city, but we are seeking a city that is to come. I can't get this passage out of my mind. If I'm reading it right, uh, he is saying that this cross is located outside of the city. And it's actually in between two cities. This is a cross, he says, that means suffering and disgrace. And so you can't find it. No, no. You can't find it until you leave the city. And once you find it, you are on your way to another city that is to come. If I'm reading this right. There are two cities, not one. There is one where you left and another where you're going. There is one where you lived but can't any longer. And there is another that you're seeking but haven't yet found. And so if I see it right, there is a cross that is positioned in between two cities. And whenever you leave one city and find that cross, you will be tempted to turn around and go back to the city you came from. But if I hear him, he's saying, if you will keep moving through that cross, you will find another city that is to come. And that is the one that you are really looking for. Now, look at those verses again in slow motion. And let me tell you what I see. I see that he is not describing a crucifixion. He never uses the word cross. He's describing an altar He's, he's looking at the same thing that other people are looking at, but he is not seeing crucifixion. This isn't Mel Gibson's passion. He's seeing an altar where the one on it is making his people holy. And so if you were watching this from the side, 
you would see one thing, but there are two different interpretations of that. One of them is whoever's on that thing is getting beat up really bad. They are losing terribly. And another person looks at that and would say, no, wait a minute. That person is actually making his people holy through this disgrace. And the other thing I see is that the altar here is not in the temple. No, no, look at it again. The altar is outside the city. Now, what he says in verse 11 is that in the Old Testament, what the priests would do is in the temple, they would sacrifice the animal. They would slaughter the animal, sprinkle its blood in the temple that was clean, and then they would take the remains of that animal and carry it outside of the temple and outside of the city where they would burn it because it was unclean. And so in the Old Testament, there was a clear line of demarcation between that which was pure and holy, and that which was defiled and alienated. That which was pure was consecrated in the altar at the temple, and that which was defiled and unclean and rejected was burned outside the camp. But what he says Jesus does is in fact move the altar Outside the city. So he tears down the wall between them. Suddenly, this place outside the city, which is for things that are rejected, impure, forgotten, defiled this place is a place of an altar now church this is a different God when I grew up in church Sunday school there was one God and then, as life happens, um, he is no longer sufficient. In the Old Testament, um, David says, First Chronicles 29, For yours, O Lord, is the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty. Listen to him. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom for everything in heaven and everything on earth belongs to you. Listen to what he says. Wealth and power and strength come from your hand. That's my Sunday school talking. In Psalm chapter 2, the psalmist says, why do the heathens rage why do the people conspire against the Lord and against his anointed? Now keep reading in Psalm 2. The Lord 
laughs. <laughs> I love this psalm. It says the Lord scoffs at all of the little armies that are taking him on. And then Psalm 2 says, and he terrifies them in his wrath. Now that is a God to believe in. In Isaiah chapter 6, he says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and at the sound of their voice, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All the earth is full of his glory. The doorposts shook, and the thresholds trembled, and the place was filled with smoke, and I fell before him, and I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of glory. Now that is a God of Sunday morning worship. That is a God of glory, hallelujah. That is touchdown Jesus, how great thou art. That is the God of my Sunday school, and that is the God of your Sunday school. We did a good job getting that God steeped into your mind, but the problem is whenever life goes to pieces, and that God has abandoned you, you need another God. You need another God. And the reason I know this is because every time you have failed and you are alienated and you've lost and you're ashamed and you're forgotten and passed over and shut out and below everyone else, you say to yourself, I feel like God has abandoned me. No, no. The God of Sunday school has abandoned you. But here is one outside the city. For all those people who have prayed begged, and God said, no. Here's one outside the city who represents people who are called to do what they don't want to do. Let this cup pass from me. The one outside the city is a sovereign who stands in front of Pilate when Pilate says, Ah, what is truth? And the God of Sunday school says, I'll show you what truth is, you little weasel. But the God outside the city says nothing. Here is a God who is immortal and he dies. Here is a God who is all-knowing, and he is silent even when he has the answer. That's the God that I call you to this morning in the cross. I, I still remember arguing with the Jehovah's Witness. As a kid, he said, so Jesus is God, and you say Jesus dies. So when God died, who ran the world? Brilliant, Sherlock. 
He said, maybe Jesus isn't who you think he is. I walked away thinking, no, maybe God isn't who I think he is. There's a picture in second century um, engravings. They found one on the wall called Aleximanos worships his God. Everyone who's in um, history or religion knows this scene. It's, it's a picture engraved in the second century of a worshiper apparently named Aleximanos. You'll see it in a second. And it's, um, it shows him worshiping, giving reverence to someone, a man who is impaled on a cross with the head of a donkey. It was the way that they mocked. They, they couldn't get their mind around this. This is how counterintuitive this is. If God is who you say he is, how does he allow people to do this to him? Well, well the answer begins with maybe God isn't who you say he is. Thank God, because most of your life is not triumph. And so what the world looks at like this and mocks and ridicules and says, that could not possibly be God, the Christian looks and says, this could not be anyone but God, because this is the way God is. And so the writer in um, Hebrews, the preacher says, let us go to him. Bearing the disgrace he bore. And that's my word for you this morning. Let us go to him. Lay down the fight. If something is going wrong in your life, pursue the processes that fix it. If people are practicing injustice, resist it. If you pray for deliverance or you pray for disease, pray hard and hold on to heaven. If you've done things that you are ashamed of, ask God for a cleansing. But there will come a time, undoubtedly in your life, when it occurs to you for the first time that this is not going the way you think it's going to go. And at that moment, and not until that moment, at that moment, let us go to him. Because we get into all kinds of trouble resisting the disgrace he bore. But Life, it seems, at times is so stacked against us that we cannot overturn the tide of it. And at that point, we sometimes ruin ourselves because we will not go to him bearing that disgrace. 
we will defend our honor the way that first century people defended theirs, and we will avoid disgrace at every possible cost. And that is good for a while, church, but there's a time when it no longer works and you know it. And that's when the bitterness and the anger sets in. And that is the time to go to him. Because you will find in Jesus a companion that only the lonely know. If that time is not today, man, I get that. I don't want to put you in that situation, please. This isn't something you wish upon yourself. He never says, let us go to disgrace. He says, let us go to him in our disgrace. But some of you, others of you, are at that point right now. You're that moment where you think, there's something wrong with me. I'm not as good as everybody else. There's something I've done or something I am that just doesn't measure up. And you will spend your whole life trying to get back into that city where there's respect, and dignity. And you're hearing me say this morning, try that for a while. And then when you find that the odds are so stacked and you cannot overcome, go to him outside the city and you will find another God. And there is one who sticks closer than any friend you ever had. You will find things in God outside the city nobody in the city's discovered yet. One more time, church, you should not seek this. You seek him. But when you are alone and forgotten, rejected, passed over, shut out, labeled, marked damaged goods, you'll find him. Oddly enough, when you say, I feel like God has abandoned me, that's actually where he is. When I graduated from IWU, I was voted least likely to succeed. <laughs> and I remember going to a church of 20 people. I've told you these details before. I won't tell them again. I just remember everything I tried in that church um, failed, and it failed miserably, at least for a while. You plan services and communion and Christmas Eve and everything, and when nobody shows up... Um, it starts to reinforce that, uh, that narrative that you have of yourself least likely to succeed. And you know the odd thing about this is the harder you try to overturn that, the more miserable you make it for yourself and for everyone else. And so I remember with just a handful of people in our church trying to do something to revive that church, I was going to put something together and take a group of people to another church and do something. And on that day, um, every one of them, they called the last minute and they bailed. Uh, yeah, we're not going to go. And so I had to call that church and I had to cancel that trip. And that was just the last straw. I know it's a small thing, but it was just the last straw. You're trying to, you know, you're trying to make, make a mark and, and you can't even find anybody in your own church. And so I called my dad on the phone and um, 
I went about a 10, 15-minute diatribe. I know that surprises you, but I, I was just on a roll in that day. And in that, I, I told him everything that was wrong with the people in my church, um, how fake they were, how too busy they were, and, and, and I told him how much they did not appreciate how hard I worked and, and uh, you know, all of the, these marvelous virtues in me that they had not discovered yet. Now, you know the game, don't you? And um, when I was through with this diatribe, I just finished by saying, I am so mad, I'm going to go hit something, man. And my dad said, Maybe you're not mad. Maybe you're just hurt. Maybe mad is the way that you deal with hurt. You know, and I thought, when, I, when did my dad be a psychiatrist? He, he said, maybe you've been mad so long that you don't even know that you're hurt. So maybe blame is the way you handle fear and hurt. And maybe cynicism is the way that you rally against failure. And like, like the way some of you are so triumphant all the time and others in the church wonder if you really feel anything. So dad said, maybe you don't need to hit something. He said, maybe you just need to find a room in the house and get in it and shut the door and just have a good cry. I thought, there is no way. I do that, and they win. And that ain't going to happen. And I waited until everyone went to bed. And then I found a back room and I went in it and shut the door. And I had a good cry. And in that room, I found a cross I did not know existed. This was not a Jesus forgive my anger cross. This was a Jesus man of sorrows rejected, kicked out of the city, beat down, Alone cross. I found a cross. There was nothing on the wall, you understand, but there was one in that room, and I discovered in God a new reality. I have never forgotten that. Years later, I would be awake in the middle of the night after begging God to take something away from me, which He did not. We prayed six times for healing, nothing changed. The cynicism began to creep in. And it was 2.30 in the morning while the family slept. In the dark living room, I found that same cross again. And I remember saying to Jesus on that night, I would rather have you in hell than be in heaven without you. It ain't heaven I want, it's you. It's you. Now, some of you this morning are so angry that you don't know you're hurt. Some of you are so cynical 
You don't know. You're afraid of failure. You're despairing. You just fight back with cynicism. Some of you are blaming others. It's always their fault. So I'm not going to try to talk you out of this. I'm just going to say, when you're done, find a room, get in it, and have a good cry. And find another Jesus. And you will never forget him. You will never forget him.